Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Did you know that short and medium-term rentals offer double the cash flow compared to long-term rentals? It's true, and Rent to Retirement just made investing in them easier than ever. Now, you can buy fully turnkey short-term and medium-term rentals that are newly built or renovated, leased, and managed. Maximize your cash flow, appreciation, and equity while Rent to Retirement takes care of all the rest for you. Plus, their creative financing options, like interest rate buy-downs, can get you a rate in the low fives and... Their investor loans let you buy multiple properties with as little as 5% down. Not 20%, 5% down. But why buy with Rent to Retirement? They're investors just like you and me and rock one of the highest reputations across bigger pockets with more five star reviews than any other company on our site. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with some of the best cash flowing markets today. Do you know how easy it is to buy an investment property from New Western? Just head over to New Western's real estate marketplace, find investor vetted properties, get help from the New Western team of real estate specialists, save time and money, and buy the perfect property for your goals. See, told you, it's easy. Or you could try to find profitable deals yourself, I guess. But that means becoming an area expert and talking to dozens of agents and sellers. From there, you'll have to comp properties, calculate ARVs, make offers, and more offers, and by then, you might be stuck in analysis paralysis. I think we go with New Western instead. New Western makes real estate investing easy. New Western acquires a new property every 13 minutes for their marketplace of over 150,000 investors. And with New Western's licensed agents who are local investing experts, your next investment property is much closer than you think. Check out newwestern.com, become an investor in their marketplace for free, and get local investment-grade properties in your inbox. They don't call it mailbox money for no reason. That's newwestern.com to find your next investment property. Only 13 minutes until a new property pops up. So get clicking. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we are going to talk about the rapidly changing housing market. In just the last couple of weeks, the data has been showing a pretty sharp decline in housing market activity and the media headlines calling it a crash or a correction have just increased a lot over the last couple of days. So we decided to invite the full panel on today and we're going to have just a general conversation about the housing market, what everyone is seeing in their local markets and in their local businesses. And then we are going to compare and contrast today today's housing market in 2022 to what happened in 2008, because that's what a lot of people are saying, right? They're saying there's a crash. It's going to be like 2008. And some of the data lines suggest that a housing decline could be possible. So we're going to learn what we can from 2008, compare and contrast and see how this market might perform similarly or how it might perform differently to the Great Recession. So you're definitely going to want to stick around for this one because the panel dropped some incredible insights and advice for how to navigate a situation like we are in right now. We 
got the whole fam together today. Kathy, James, Jamil, and Henry. I love having all of you guys here. How's it going? Good. Good to see you all. What's cracking? I mean, I feel like even in the last three weeks or whatever, since all four of us were on a show together, the housing market has changed really dramatically. So (laughs) we decided to bring everyone back to have a conversation about what is going on, what you would even call this this weird housing market we're in. So we're actually just going to start and I'll provide some data updates. And at the end of this, I'd like for each of you to tell me what this data means to you. Are we in a correction? Is the housing market crashing? Is it something else? What words, what emotions are you feeling? Let's have a little bit of a a session on what's going on in the housing market. So here is the data that we are seeing right now, at least over the last couple of weeks. And I'm using Redfin data. They actually provide weekly data, which is really cool because a lot of the other data sources lag and are just looking at July. And what we're seeing as of the last couple of weeks is that year over year, housing market data is still up. It's up 6% year over year. And that's really important because the housing market is seasonal and Year-over-year data is kind of the gold standard in measuring the housing market. So that points to a housing market that is still relatively strong. We're also seeing that inventory has started to peak and active listings are going down. Both of those two things, when inventory stops growing and active listings go down, are things that put upward pressure on the housing market. So those are some of the data points that sort of point to the housing market is okay, or you know, there's a bit of a slide right now, but it's not too bad. But on the other side, we are seeing some other data that is a bit more concerning, or I don't know if anyone's concerned about it, but is putting downward pressure on the housing market. Specifically, we are seeing that days on market are still pretty low, but they've gone up in the most considerable way that they have in two or three years. We're seeing that 7.7 homes, 7.7% of homes had a price drop, which is a record high. And I think most notably, the thing that most people are looking at when they're saying the housing market is correcting or crashing is that month over month data from June to July was down 6%. And so, like I said, year over year is sort of the gold standard. But when we're in a transitionary housing market like we are right now, it is important to look at what's going on on a month over month basis or even week over week if you can. And we're seeing that housing markets in in a lot of markets, they peaked in June and they're starting to come down. And again, that is not year over year, which is sort of the gold standard, but that is month over month. And so we're seeing that normally housing prices each year start to go down in August or September, but this year they sort of peaked in June and they're starting to go down, which is a considerable departure to normal seasonal patterns and is therefore notable. So that is really the data that we have to to analyze here. And with that, let's try and understand. Let's go to the panel and figure out exactly how you all feel about this. Kathy, are we in a crash, a correction, or something else? Well, there's definitely a crash, um, but it is not what people think that means. There's a crash in home sales, for sure. Sales are down. Uh, It's very hard to sell things today at higher interest rates and high prices. There's not the huge demand that there was uh, because fewer people can can afford that or or they're just on the sideline because they're afraid. So yeah, there's a, a crash in sales and still a crash in inventory because again, people uh, new listings are down. People aren't in a hurry to sell their home in this market for good reason, especially with what are they going to buy? Something more expensive than what they have at a higher interest rate? So it's not a price crash. Maybe for people who bought in the last six months, they're seeing uh, their value of their home go down. But most people didn't buy a house this year to sell it this year. If you're a flipper, you did. And, you know, you're probably feeling some pain. But if you bought a house to live in this year and it's gone down in value, are you freaking out? Or are you saying, no, I got a pretty low, low payment here? All right. So crash feelings, but not in necessarily crash level pricing. Crash-ish. Yeah. The people feeling the pain are the people in the industry, right? People who try to sell homes. That's that's hard right now. If you're a realtor, you're probably wondering how you're going to get through this year. And mortgage brokers are getting laid off left and right. Construction workers are still busy because there's a lot of homes that are trying to get completed. But, uh, you know, the people in 
working in the housing industry, flippers, you know, are probably kind of, you know, having a more difficult time than they did just six, six months ago. It's a different market. But yeah, so it just depends on who you are and what you're doing in real estate. All right, Henry, is your word crash-ish? <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and obviously the caveat is, you know, real estate is market specific, right? So there's some difference um, in different areas of the country. I don't, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't call this a crash. Um, what I'm seeing is more of a correction and a slowdown, but definitely not a crash. And I'm just speaking from the experience that I'm having. When we list a home, we're still getting it under contract in five days, right? It's not sitting long. And I think that's due to that we have population growth here. That's probably unlike a lot of places in the country. And we also have housing shortage. There's just not a lot of supply. And our supply for the last, I would say, three months was going up by about 100 houses a week. And then it's plateaued. It's stopped. So we're not seeing the growth in houses coming onto the market. So inventory is flattening out. And we do have less buyers because the interest rates are higher. But there's still plenty enough because we have population growth. There's still new people moving here every single month because of the types of jobs that are here require butts and seats. And so when you've got population growth and shortage of inventory, yes, less people can buy, but you have new people coming in every month who still can buy because they've got these big salaries that these companies are paying people now to start working for them. And so I think what we're seeing, especially in this market, is more of a correction. Um, we have seen price drops and where we're seeing price drops are on are on uh, higher end houses. So houses that have more room, right? If, 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 a, if, a, if a listing is listed for $2 million and they've got, you know, and they've got, you know, a million and a half worth of equity in it and they drop by $30,000, it's really not affecting the seller, but it is going to do something to the numbers as far as houses that are taking, uh, that are taking a price reduction. We're not seeing a ton of price reductions on the first time home buyer, uh, uh, types of homes, those single family, uh, three bed, two bath, 1500 square foot homes, those things don't have a chance to have a price drop. They're gone. And, um, and so, no, I, I haven't dropped, have I dropped? No, I haven't dropped price on anything. I've considered it. And then boom, you get offers in it and it, and it goes, but I focus more on the first time home buyer product. Right. And so, um, but I, but we are seeing price drops on the on the much more higher end homes. And I think that's just because people were shooting for the stars and hoping to land on the moon because values were still going up. And so if they didn't get the price that they were, you know, dreaming about, then they just drop it to the price that they were expecting to get in the first place. So I don't, it's not to me, the price drops aren't, Hey, I thought this house was worth 200,000 and the market's telling me it's only worth 150. No, the price drops are like the house is worth 200, but I'm going to shoot for 225. And then if I don't get 225, I'll drop it to 210 and I'll get 210. And it's still more than the 200 that it's worth. So no, I don't think it's a, it's a crash. It's a correction to me. All right. Well, I think your, your market is the kind of market, at least according to my analysis, that tends is still poised to do well, I would say. Um, and definitely want to echo what you're saying about list prices. People are definitely listing very aggressively. Um, but still, even to date, the sale to list price, which is a good way of measuring if sellers and buyers expectations are on, it's it's right at 100 percent. So um, sellers are still getting what they ask for on average in, across the country. Now, let's head to uh, Jamil and James, who are in more. Uh, bubblicious markets, should we say, or ones that have maybe a little bit riskier. Uh, Jamil, what do you think? Correction, crash, something else altogether? I believe the housing market is in a standoff. All right. I think that everybody's got a gun pointed at each other here, and there's really no chance at victory for anybody. This is the reason why. When you look at Phoenix, Phoenix is one of those markets that was the poster child for the run-up in 2006 and for the dramatic crash in 2008. And looking at the statistics, right? I, I love looking at Phoenix because it really gives us 
what this looks like on a micro level, and then you can look at what the housing market's doing on a macro level, right? So back in 2006, in Phoenix, we had one house for every 80 people, all right? One house for every 80 people. Think of that. Now, with respect to inventory, we have one house for every 360 people. Whoa. Wait, can you explain that? How does that make sense? Like, where do people live? Does that not include apartments or something? I I think that's just talking single family. That's just talking single single family. family. Because I think what's happening is we're seeing that the housing starts have dramatically plummeted, right? Back in 2006, we would have anywhere between four to 5,000 housing starts a month. Right now, those housing starts have gone down to about 2,500 housing starts a month. So that's nearly half. When you look at days on market, in 2008, the average days on market was 110 days. All right, so that we had all of this inventory. They, we had a total of 49,000 houses on our MLS in Arizona in, in, at the peak of 2006. Right now we have 19,000 houses available on the MLS in Arizona. That's, that's down 61% from where we were at our peak. So when you've got such dramatically low inventory, I think what we've seen and why we have this little pain point is investors, that's who's panic selling right now, right? The people who are fixing and flipping or the folks that need to sell immediately. They're the ones that aren't realizing the full potential or the full profits that they might've been able to extract from their deal. So they're selling for less. You're seeing those dramatic price decreases happen. And they're, and they're happening for sure. We're seeing them here in Phoenix. I, I look at the MLS and every day it's price decrease, price decrease, price decrease. On all of my flips right now, we are dropping price. But we're still coming out profitable on those flips. And we're still going under contract within 30 days of listing our house, even in this correction. How much are you dropping price, just out of curiosity? Typically, our average price reduction is about $10,000. So percentage-wise, like 2 or 3% or something like that? That's less? about 10%. That, no, that's, a, that's about 1% because we're, oh, okay. we're, we're we're, our projects are in the million-dollar range. Okay, so pretty small relative. So small. Small price reductions, and, and we are going under contract, and they're still going under contract within 30 days. I don't, I don't see how that's still a painful situation. Right? I'm not... I'm not hemorrhaging money on hard money i'm not hemorrhage i'm not i'm not sitting on inventory choking choking out because i'm i'm stressed out and overwhelmed it's none of that's happening and i've made such incredible profits leading up to this time right now that i'm padded and cushioned to even break even for the next six months if i had to in order to stay in the game and keep my trades and so i think what we've seen happen dave is we've seen that investors and people who had to sell rushed to the market to list when they started hearing grumblings of a housing correction because of the rising interest rates. And now what, we've, now what we're experiencing is these houses have, have jumped inventory and now that inventory can't be replaced. And so we are going to see that number go from 19,000 dramatically low, dramatically decrease. And I, my, I predict that within the next six months, that number will go back to dangerously low levels of inventory and we'll probably get back to that point where we have six to eight thousand houses on a uh, listed in a month in phoenix and that's going to be trouble yeah just just to clarify for people what inventory means there are two components of it inventory is not that just the number of houses that get listed for sale um, that's actually known as new listings. And that's what kathy said was actually dropping and inventory is a reflection of how many properties are for sale on the market at a given time. And so inventory over the last couple of months has been going up because demand is falling off. And so houses are sitting on the market longer, but it wasn't because um, new listings were dropping. Now new listings are dropping. And so that's counteracting the decline in demand. And I think that's why a lot of us are seeing inventory start to level off. Of course, we don't know which way it's, it's going to go, but that's sort of the dynamic, at least in the data that's going on right now. All right, James, Seattle. What's happening up there? Are we in a crash, a correction, or are you gonna say we're in a standoff like Jamil? <laughs> I, I think I think we are in a snapback. 
is really what it comes down to. If you, you look at Jamil's market, my market, a lot of, you know, even Boise, all these 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 peaked out markets that spiked, you know, like in, in Washington, a lot of our really strong markets, they, they appreciated 20 to 25% in March alone, and, which is a huge run up. And, and what we're seeing is it's just pulling back naturally. And I, I do think we are in a slide. I, I think it's completely different in 2008. 2008 was like the brakes got hit on us. All of a sudden, subprime mortgages went away. There was no money out there. And all it just hammered us. And it was very drastic and quick. This feels like this slow, slow slide. Because like what you were talking about, like 6%, we're up 6%. But last month, we were up about 10%. And it's just this slow slide back. It, and really, I think the people that think it's crashing are is they bought it at the wrong time. You know, if you bought any type of short-term investment, whether it's an Airbnb, a fix and flip, or those high-yielding investments during, I would say, Mar- February to April, you are going to have problems. That is, the, that is the reality of it. Just like the same type of good timing when you if you bought... You know, if you bought four months after the pandemic hit, that's good timing. You hit the same gas, but this is going to be the, the brakes are getting hit right now. And and what we're seeing is we're about 20 to 25 percent down from peak. Whoa. Yeah, because it which I mean, it's pretty I mean, it came right back down. You know, there's a house that I have listed actually with uh, we did my first flip with Ashley Care from Real Estate Rookies. We bought this property in Bothell and we when we performed the deal, the comp was eight from 18 months ago, exact same house for a million fifty. During this remodel, it went all the way up to one five in a six month period. The value skyrocketed almost 40%, which is absurd. It is, and I remember calling Ashley, I go, hey, we got to get this thing on market because it can start going the other way really quick. And I was joking with her, and, <laughs> and then it went the other way. And um, <laughs> you know, and we sold the house. We sold we listed at one two, so about 10% below what the peak was. We got it pending. That buyer fell apart because of financing at 1.1. Now we're at a million fifty, which is the same value that it was 18 months ago, and we're getting one show in a week max. Wow. And so there's certain markets that come through, and, and it really just comes down to where is the market at? When did you buy it? And, and kind of push through. But that's where you hear all the crashing because people also broke a lot of rules, and they weren't really paying attention to what true real estate rules were. And those deals are coming backwards. Like the, the stuff that is crashing is homes that were always negative or had deficiencies that that people bought acting like they didn't have deficiencies. That stuff is down 35%. But other than that, it's really just the general market is just kind of leveling out. There's other markets like Capitol Hill in Seattle is one of the most expensive markets in Seattle. It's had a little bit of issues like you know, with a crime and it had a weird kind of stigma for a while. And so during this peak, when you know, like me and Ashley's Bothell one went up 24%, Capitol Hill was actually very steady. It went up 10 to 12% during this time, which is the best market in Seattle, but it kept steady. We've seen no price change in that neighborhood. We listed six townhomes last weekend and we sold all of them. Uh, we sold all six of them in three days. Wow. And so the mar- the markets that were steady and good and healthy, they're fine. Mm-hmm. Deficiencies spiked. I mean, it's just like anything. A hockey stick up, it comes the other way. And, um, and I definitely have seen that. And I do think it is starting to level out. But I, I, I predict that there, we, we might see some of those markets that really jolted come down to pre-pandemic pricing. I think that's kind of where it's going to level back out. Wow. Pre-pandemic, like in Boise and Reno, like the, some of those like really hot markets, you think it could come down that far? Uh, I I think yes, I do. Um, and okay. it, that wow. that is, I think in twelve months there's going to be some markets because <laughs> here's the reality: some markets are not supposed to be expensive. Where people live, they're supposed to be affordable. And as you know, we have some factors going on. What are you saying about Boise? Uh, <laughs> Boise, I like Boise. I, I I would definitely live in Boise, but um, it's you get this slow slide back, and I just think you know as we see inflation going up, and it, the people's people are you know there there's an erosion of capital right now of disposable income. Like there is right now, one in six Americans are behind on their utilities. That's a big deal. That means people are struggling to make payments. And, and in two thousand and seven and eight, they were at one in five. 
So there's other signs of affordability issues, which are going to cause the market to be flat because people can only buy what they can buy. People can only sell for the, what they can sell for. So there's going to be just be this kind of stagnant market uh, it, it, for the next, I think, couple of years. But I think it's just going to be this slow slide, not this sudden jolt. We've already seen the sudden jolt. And now from here, it's, it's more steady. I wonder about the Boise market because a lot of that growth came from California. And right now, California is facing a pretty severe drought. We can't use, we can't water our our gardens for two weeks at all. Um, I we we invested a lot in our yard, and probably going to see that all just turn brown. And Boise has no water issues, so I'm I'm also curious about those kinds of factors. If more and more people are retiring in California or able to move and are thinking, maybe I want to be in a place where there's water. So who knows? Who knows what the future brings? But that could keep. Boise prices up, possibly. James, I was just going to say, man, you've probably had so many good deals, and the one that's that's falling apart, you did with the Bigger Pockets <laughs> podcast, pretty uh, pretty public one to take a loss on. Yeah, luckily though, you have to, but but you have to pivot as investor, right? It is what it is. You can't. The market is mother nature. You cannot you fight it. You have to participate in it. You got to adapt to it. So just pivot and change things. So like for that deal, especially, we're not losing money right now. We're still making money. But if we sit there and we don't make a change, as the market flattens out, that means longer hold times. You got to you got to stop the bleeding. So actually, I just paid off our hard money loan yesterday on that. And uh, because I had some liquidity come in, I called asked him, like, hey, I can just pay this off because now we're not in a hurry to sell it. And if we're not in a hurry, we can wait because I do feel good about our list price, but we don't want the hard money and the debt expense to force us into a different situation. And so, you know, we just paid off the loan and now we're now we have no debt and we're going to wait for that buyer because if it doesn't sell for a million fifty, that means we are actually getting close to pre pandemic levels in that specific neighborhood. Which is a great neighborhood. It's uh in in it's right outside Seattle suburb. Good good schools. Everything is good about this neighborhood. So that that's a little scary to look at. James, I I believe first and foremost, everybody listening to this podcast right now, rewind what James just said, and and understand that he just gave you a look inside the mind of every one of your fix and flip investors out there right now. <laughs> It want, like if you if you are wondering where they are, what their temperature is, what they're feeling, and what they're thinking, you just got the most true example of what that thought process is. And here's what I want to say about it, James. I think you're I think you're a little bit over. I think you're I think you're overthinking the pain part which makes sense i i it, it get i get it because you have to insulate for your projects moving forward and i think that you will be positioned well to do that because of the of the pivots that you're making right now but i also believe that it's not going to turn out to be as bad in 6 to 12 months as you're planning for right now but for anybody out there that wants to do business in fix and flips that wants to sell deals to fix and flippers this is what they're thinking and if you can and if you can structure your deals in ways to give them enough runway so that they can stay in the game with you and they can continue to do projects because they also don't want to lose their trades i think james for you right now one of the keys is making sure that you retain your your highly talented team but do so in ways that isn't going to hemorrhage money would you agree that that's a concern uh, yeah, well, it's about working smarter and in working in the certain market conditions. Like you have to keep your team, but you also have to pivot and change things and give different roles and responsibilities out. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's declining or flattening. It's a different market than what it was 24 months ago. There, those are three different types of markets, and so you just have to prep, move your pieces around, pivot, and then and, um, and then make your adjustments. All right, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. It sounds like the general consensus here is uh, that things are adjusting. I think James, probably the most bearish. I, I actually am feeling a little more bearish right now, too. I'd say we're solidly in a housing market correction. I don't think we're we're in crash territory, but the data is definitely turning a little bit faster and more dramatically than I think I was personally expecting. Um, and it 
like you all said, different asset classes, different markets are going to perform differently. But on a national level, I do think we're heading back towards at least very, very modest year over year growth and uh, probably and possibly even negative on a, on a national level in the next couple of months. Um, I do want to turn this conversation to uh, all the research you all did. And just for everyone listening, what we're going to talk about for the remainder of the show is how this housing market is different than 2008. You've now heard everyone's, all the panelists' uh, opinions about what this market is and where it might go. But with all of the media coverage and about a crash, uh, we wanted to analyze how the housing market is different from 2008. And we're going to go through five different topics and, and sort of break down, compare and contrast different points about the housing market. But first, we are going to take a quick break. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With a message for everyone paying big wireless way too much. Please, for the love of everything good in this world, stop. With Mint, you can get premium wireless for just $15 a month. Of course, if you enjoy overpaying, no judgments, but that's weird. Okay, one judgment. Anyway, give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 for three months required. New subscribers only. Renew for 12 months to lock in savings. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com. All right, so let's get into our compare and contrasting of the 2008 market to the 2022 housing market. Myself and each of the panelists researched a single topic to talk about and how it's either the same or perhaps different from 2008. And I'm going to go first, and I probably took the easiest one, so thanks for letting me get away with the easy homework, everyone. Uh, I'm going to go with consumer debt and mortgage quality. So as we all know, subprime mortgages was one of the main issues that led to the 2008 crash. Basically, irresponsible debt was given out. And I want to just show some data about how different it is now. Um, so the first thing is that the median credit score, I'll ask you guys, I'll actually have you guys guess. Does anyone have a guess what the median credit score for a mortgage is right now? 680. Seven, 740. 640. It is 773 is Whoa. the median credit score right now. <laughs> yes. Wow. And that is actually down. It was up to 780 before. And what's the highest? It's like 850, but like anything above 720 is considered excellent credit. So I thought this was an extremely telling point because 
Credit scores, they're not perfect. We all know that, but they are a very good indicator of how able you are to pay your mortgage. And a 773 mortgage credit score is phenomenal. There was also some other data that showed that Anything below a credit score of 620, that's considered a subprime mortgage. Like that, that's like someone who has at least a relatively decent chance of defaulting on your loan. Back in 2004 and 2005, the total number of mortgages that were originated that were below 620 was 14%. That's what it maxed out at. It is now below 2% right now. So when you think about the main thing that brought us into the depths of the 2008 crisis, and listen, like 2008, there was a drop off in demand, but in my mind, what made it really bad was a lot of the forced selling, all the foreclosures, that kind of stuff. And so when I saw this, I thought that to me, although I am seeing the market go down, sort of like in my mind puts a stop gap on how bad things can get because you're not going to see... people who are going to sort of default on their mortgages um, because lenders basically have cleaned up their act and are starting to lend to people who are actually qualified to pay back their mortgage. I mean, it's unbelievable. Isn't there, there was like a, Kathy, you might know because you were doing this. Isn't there something, what do they call it? It was like ability to pay a requirement. A Nina loan? No, not a Nina loan. There's like, they now implemented this thing oh, where yeah. you have to like, believe that they can reasonably pay back their loan, which it's crazy that that didn't exist before. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and you know, when you were when we were giving loans to subprime borrowers who already had bad credit, it really wasn't too hard for them to walk away from a home. You know, they had shown a history of not paying bills. All right. So my compare and contrast to 2008 is mortgage quality. Mortgage quality now much better than it was a decade or a decade and a half ago. I think this will probably overlap a little bit with what you brought, James. Uh, Can you tell us what you think about the 2008 market and how it's a little bit different or maybe the same? Yeah, the the 2008 market, when we were going through that, it it was definitely a completely different thing. It was the whole banking market had stalled out and and kind of just, it was like the skyrocketing of defaults and like everybody threw in the white towel all at once. And it was it was like people just gave up and that's why we saw this skyrocketing of foreclosures and people just did not care. Whereas, you know, right now people have worked hard. They bought some uh, properties and they can afford them. And like you were just talking about the quality of mortgage borrowers are is much better. A lot of people learned a lot of lessons in 2008 and so did the banking market. But what we have seen is we have seen an increase in defaults and foreclosures. There's a 219% increase, uh, or basically from the beginning of, uh, or we've seen a 219% increase in foreclosures in the last 12 months. But the big thing is we are at a fraction of what it was in 2008. In 2008, they were at 1.8% of all housing units were in foreclosure. Right now we are at 0.12. So there's this dramatic difference of defaults going on uh, because because people haven't, People haven't given up. It's it's like right now, it's like people just can't go buy something new. They spent all their money, and so things are flattening out. We've seen some pullback to get into the affordability factor, but it's more like people still want to go buy. They still want to own homes. They still want to get settled in. They want to maybe move into a different market, and it it's really not that bad. Yes, we've seen the increase in foreclosures, and I, I, I actually think we're going to see an even larger increase because there was a moratorium for two years. There, there was no foreclosures going on. So we're going to see that scary percentage increase ratchet up over the next 12 months, but we're still, ha- we, we would have to be almost 10 times the deep, or 10 to 15 times the amount of for- homes in foreclosure to match 2008. So there's a lot of runway on that at that point. Um, and so the foreclosure is just totally different in general. I mean, we were out, we were swimming in foreclosures in 2008. Like we cannot, you would drive down a street and it was like, oh, here, door knocking was very easy and you could be very inefficient. We could hit like 80 homes in a six hour period because they were so clustered together. Right now, our guys are still driving everywhere. It's just not the same type of market. That's incredible. I mean, if you if you listen uh, to the episode, I think it was in June or July that Jamil and I did with Rick Sharga, who's sort of an expert on foreclosures. 
he was saying like it's starting to tick up and that number sounds scary. But to your point, it's still like one fifteenth of what it used to be. Um, and he was saying that a lot of the mortgages that are ticking up were people who were in default prior to COVID and the moratorium. And now they're restarting foreclosures. And it's not necessarily even I'm sure there is an increase, but it's not necessarily even a huge increase of new people going into foreclosures. It's people that were previously in it. But awesome. That was very helpful. So, so far, sort of on the lending foreclosure side, we're seeing mortgages are better. Uh, you know, not a lot of foreclosures relative to where we are. Let's move on to Kathy. Kathy, what did you bring to uh, show and tell today? My to- <laughs> my topic was inventory. And I love this topic because it really comes back to the fundamentals of supply and demand. That's really, at the end of the day, why so many different markets behave differently. It's, it all comes down to supply and demand. Interest rates are of no, no issue. In 2000. 2000- nine and 10 and 11 interest rates were lower, but there was tons of inventory, but no one was buying. So it really comes down to that the, the fundamentals, supply and demand. So when you look at where we were in 2007, there was 3.7 million homes um, in, in the inventory. And, um, and then today you fast forward and yes, it has gone up. At the beginning of this year, there was only 860,000 homes um, in the in, in in inventory, so that's the that's a what I should do my math, but like three to a third or even close to a fourth of the amount of inventory uh, at the beginning of this year. It has gone up. It's almost doubled, and that can be scary when you see headlines. And please do not get your facts from headlines. You are getting bad advice. It's only meant to scare you. So just stop looking at headlines, please, and listen to data because you you'll make bad decisions if you uh, you know just listen to to that. Uh, so where we are, yes, inventory has gone up dramatically as it should and as it needs to. And if you could just say this is a good thing, then it won't be so scary. We're at about 1.3 million in inventory today, but we still need to be closer to two million. So we're still way under. So that's on the supply side. Every market's different. Different markets are going to be behaving differently. Depends on jobs, population. But overall, uh, we still don't have enough homes out there for the people who need them. So let's talk about the people. Um, we, uh, if you if you go back to 2007, 2008, that was 14 years ago. Do you think that the U.S. has grown in population since then? Well, the answer is yes. It absolutely has. There was three hundred about 300 million people in 2008. Today, fast forward, it's 332 million. That's almost 30 million more people. So how many people live in a home? You know, two, three, four. You, you, you got to have homes for these people as the, as the population grows. So again, you fast forward from then till now, you have uh, right now half, less than half the supply of what we had then, but you've got 30 million more people. So just like throw everything else out the window and just look at that. Supply and demand. People need a place to live. They're not investing like a stock. They they want a roof, you know, for their family. So then on top of that, let's look at the generations and the demographics between then and now. And we know that millennials are the largest generation today. I talk about them all the time. I love you guys. Um, 1981 to 1996 is generally what we consider millennials. Uh, there's 82 million of them. That's a lot. That's a lot. There was only 65 million or so Gen Xers. So again, you go back 14 years and, and um, the oldest of the millennials were 27 years old. So this massive group of people... You know, they, they, they were not looking to buy homes. They were just trying to figure out what, what happened to their world, you know, and, and it was the Gen Xers that were the, the home buying age. So here we had all this supply flooded the market with way too much construction without the demand that the, the youngsters hadn't grown up yet. And there was all this talk about, oh, millennials are going to never buy houses. Well, they were 27. And and the largest group of them were like 16. So it, it was just misinformation, bad headlines, ignore the headlines, and just know that today we have the largest group of people ever who are now at home buying household formation age, and the inventory is not there for them. So it's really a crisis, but it's not the crisis that people are talking about in the headlines. It's not a housing crash. It's a housing inventory crash where we didn't prepare well. 
And preparation would have been helping builders build. And of course, I'm going to <laughs> say that because, you know, we're in the development world and we would love some help uh, because what's needed is, is more supply, uh, more affordable for sure. And it's just not there. If, if you go to the supply and what happened since, since 2008, uh, that we were building we were starting 1.6 million homes in, in 22, um, 2002, 2003, 2004, uh, 2005 was 1.7. We were just like starting all these new homes when the buyers weren't there. It was silly. So then when the market just crashed, then from 2008 to 2015, it was like 400,000 a year starts down from 1.7. So again, a huge correction in, in bringing on new supply just when these millennials were growing up and ready to start homes. So we, we did not bring on new supply. Just this last year, we got a little closer, 1.1 million in new homes, but not enough to meet this demand. And there's not a lot of lot supply either. When you go online and, and search new homes, it's kind of scary because it says there's 10-month supply out there, and that's that's what a lot of people are using to say we're oversupplied. And what they're not looking at is the fact that there's really only one-month supply of new homes available because those are the completed homes that can actually be sold. The rest are 7 million in some stage of construction, which has been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And then you've got two-and-a-half-month supply that hasn't even started. So that 10-month supply number is not what you think it is, and, it, and yet a lot of people are using that uh, as a headline to say that we're oversupplied. We're, we're just not. Wow. You just dropped so much knowledge, and that's yeah, that's an incredible uh, <laughs> amount of data for everyone just to take in, and obviously that's, that's hugely important. It's just the basic supply and demand. And if there's more demand than supply, that will definitely at least put a backstop on some of the like slide that we're seeing, even if you think the housing market is going down. And Jamil, I mean, that sort of like dovetails with what you were saying before, uh, right? About like inventory in Phoenix. Yeah. I apologize, guys. I thought I was doing inventory. So I literally have the exact same research and data that Kathy has. Just tell us again. Just, Let's hear it, man. Let's, it <laughs> Let's make sure it really sinks in with everyone. We're like twins. I Well, you know what? I, I love it. But it, they, they very do. They do um, marry each other very well because construction starts. That tells us sentiment, right? That tells us how confident builders feel about the housing market and where they think they're going to be in a profitable situation. So when you're looking at construction supply, I like to look at it from a micro perspective. So just looking at Phoenix, for example, looking back at 2006, we were issuing 5,000 building permits a month, right? And that tells you where the builders were. That tells you where they thought the housing market was going. That tells you what they were thinking demand was coming from. And obviously it was coming from a lot of speculation. There was not the population. There was not the demand that truly was there to absorb all of that inventory. And now you look at Q1 of 2022 and on a micro level, again, here in Phoenix, Arizona, they're issuing 2.5 thousand. So 2,500 building permits a month. That's half. That's half of what it was back in 2006 and in the peak. And when you look at it nationally, in 2005, they, we had 1.7 million housing starts. 1.7 million as compared to right now in 2022, where we're at 1.1, and that's up from 400 to 600,000 housing starts that you had leading up to this ramp up that builders just actually started to increase their, their, uh, their construction. So when you're looking at it from construction starts and construction supply, we're not there. We have, we are so dramatically different from what led up to the 2008 crash to what we are experiencing right now in 2022. All right. So, so far we've heard that mortgages are better. Foreclosures are way better. Uh, inventory is lower and construction has just been very slow over the last decade or so. So like the total housing supply is probably way lower than it was in 2008. Henry, what did you bring for us? Round it out. Is there any, maybe 
is there any ways we're similar to 2008 or what do you got? <laughs> not not in this category. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm talking about appreciation and growth rates. And so, I mean, we're talking about a huge recession in 2008 where values of homes dropped 20% or more in some markets and they dropped so rapidly that that, that, you know, that's when we were talking about crash earlier, you asked us, was this a crash or was this a correction? Like to me, crash means things are dropping so fast that no one's going to buy because who wants to buy while they're falling? They're going to wait till the bottom. You know, that's not what we're seeing right now. And so if we're comparing appreciation and growth rates from 2008 to now to try to see if we're in a similar boat, well, I mean, absolutely not. We're still seeing values increase. Even through this slowdown, values are increasing, you know, anywhere between two and six percent in certain markets uh, month over month. <laughs> like it's 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 crazy. Right. And so it's because you have to look at, you know, the, you know, everybody's kind of touched on it. But the things that drove the housing market crash in 2008 don't apply here. And I know we as people like human nature, we naturally want to compare things and we want to use history as a teacher so that we can, you know, put ourselves in better positions for for future decisions. But this is completely different. Like global pandemic kind of started this, which caused money to flood the market and people had more money. And then all of a sudden you didn't have to be physically tied to your location to do work anymore. And so people were like, let's move. And everybody was moving and they had all this money. And so before the banks were lending money to people who couldn't afford homes or couldn't afford the, the, the expense of the kinds of homes they were buying, which caused a huge problem but that's not what happened during uh during 2020 2021 when people were or especially 2021 when people were bidding up on houses and removing contingencies you did see houses sell for 20 30 40 50 grand over asking price but not all of those houses were appraising for over that asking price people just had the money to pay the difference that's not a crash that's people saying what they're willing to pay for. That's what the housing market is. People decide what they're willing to pay for homes. And they were saying, I think this house is worth more than 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 what it's listed for to me. Right. And so, no, I don't you just you just can't compare the two. And so as a, as a appreciation, there was no appreciation in 2008. Right. I think I think one quarter things dropped 12 percent like that's. That, that's insane as far as a price drop goes in a quarter. And here we're still seeing prices rise. If you look at the data for July 2022, um, you've got the median home price grew by 16.6%. And you said earlier in the show, we talked about Sellers, sellers are still getting what they're asking for. You said it's about at about 100% that people are still getting what they're asking for. And so if the median home price is growing and sellers are still getting what they're asking for, that means values are increasing. And so, no, this is a completely different correction. I don't think it's a crash. I don't know that it will crash. But what I do know is that the factors of this are so far different than what we saw in 2008 that we really don't know what's going to happen. Jamil's right. It's a standoff. And we are just, we're having to take our time and try to pick the best entries we can based on our financial conditions. And I think that's what buyers are starting to do too. The ones that are buying are saying, hey, I don't know what next year is going to bring. I just know that I think it's the best time for me to try to get in and own something. And so follow the fundamentals of investing if you're an investor, and that is you try to buy at a certain percentage under market value to give you some cushion. But man, nothing. This, this 2022 correction is is just night and day different than what happened in 2008. We're still seeing appreciation across the table. The only thing I want to add to this is I agree with everybody. It's it's t totally different market. You know, the foreclosures, the appreciation is different. But the only thing I have seen a similarity in is the buyer sentiment right now. Like when we were listing and selling homes in 2008, there was just as many bodies out there 
and it was the same type of buyer. They're opportunistic. Can they get a good deal on something? And the buyer sediment is very, very similar. And until that turns, that's where we're going to see that has to change for the market to actually start getting growth back in. But people are buying. I mean, my buyer, I'm a buyer. My sediment's changed, but I still contracted $16 million in real estate last week, uh, month for myself. Wow. We're buying apartments. We're buying development. We're buying fix and flip. I, it's we're still contracting, but you're just being cautious. And then that that's the but the sediment is very, very similar. Well, James, what you know, one of the the questions I wanted to ask was like, what are some of the lessons for those of you who were investing in 2008? Like, what are some of the lessons that you learned? I'm curious, can you help us understand like what changed buyer sentiment in 2008? And how did growth start coming back? Well, growth started coming back. It was a very steady. I mean, part of the growth started with the government. You know, they offered that first-time homebuyer tax credit, and it was just kind of this building block through. But it was, I felt like the sledgehammer came through in 2008, which this is not that. And so it's going to be a different turn, too, in the sediment. I think it's just going to be time. And then also what will change is the unknown. We have the Fed jumping around saying, hey, we don't know what's going on. I mean, as soon as the Fed changes its message, it's going to, I think, then like once they give us a, a stable answer and that this is what they think and here's the actual plan, not just we're trying, then the sediment will start to go. Everyone's just kind of like kind of freaking out. But it is definitely making for some good buys, though. Again, we contracted 80 unit building. I've been able to buy an 80 unit building in Seattle in three years because the hedge funds are buying them all. And so the the sediments, you know, I and I sound little i'm definitely cautious but i'm buying and and being cautious so and i think that's who's there the real buyers out there looking at your listings the real investors out there looking yes they're cautious they should be and and at the end of the day it's probably not going to change until the fed gives us more consistency and we everyone feels safer yeah that that's a very good point i I totally agree i think the the fed is really the big question mark right now and until we get some stability there it's just a lot of uncertainty Kathy, you were around in 2008. What what were your major lessons that you learned? Oh, so many. <laughs> so many. Um, the big one was I didn't listen to my own advice that I was giving everybody else. And um, so we did really well on our cash flow properties, but we took a really hard hit on a couple of properties that really just didn't make sense. And there was no reason why we should have bought them. Uh, we, we had... Uh, construction properties, and those would have been fine, but they were short-term notes. And um, when it came to refi out of the construction loan, there were no lenders left. Nobody would lend to us at that point, which is kind of hard to imagine, but that's how it was. Uh, Banks were failing left and right. So we were already past 10 loans. Uh, At the time before that, you could get unlimited loans, and then suddenly it was limited to 10. If you were over that, you were out of luck. So we had to hand those new construction properties back to the to the seller, and we lost all our money on that. Um, we also bought in Boise, which at the time wasn't ready. It wasn't where it is today, and it, there was only like two major employers, and um, that, that was really tough. We couldn't get those properties rented. So I've learned since to just stick with what I know, which is be in markets that are really well diversified with lots of different kinds of employers. That's, that's really helpful in a, in a market that's slowing down. Uh, you could lose, you could see job losses and, and uh, you know, a slowing economy, but there would be a diversification of employer. So that's super impo- important. All of our Texas properties fared well. They did amazing during that downturn. Rents went up. Um, over time, values went up. So had I just stuck with what I was telling people and just, you know, stayed in diversified markets where they cash flow, uh, it would have been fine. So just stay in your lane. That's good advice. Stay in your lane. <laughs> All right, Jamil, I know you've talked pretty openly about taking some pretty big lumps in 2008. What What did you learn from 2008 that you're applying to your strategy now? Well, it's funny, Kathy and I are, are I, I know we're kindred spirits because we have extremely similar thought processes on how to survive and thrive in today's situation. So my biggest downfall in 2008 was A, getting outside of my core competencies and, and my investing strategy, right? I went from wholesaler 
to multifamily development and I got creamed because I was over leveraged because I was counting on lenders to take me out of deals. When you're counting on a third party to get you out of a situation, regardless of what that situation is, you have no control because that person can change their parameters. That person can change their mind. That institution can change their parameters. That institution can change their mind. Things can, can absolutely get away from you if you have the survival of your business model dependent on a third party. And so for me, the thing that I learned the most was I have to, I have to be in control. And in wholesale, I get to be in control. And so the thing that, and I almost made the mistake again, we, we all heard that, that episode where I was, I was so excited to be contracting a $12.5 million multifamily building. And I had an opportunity to wholesale that building and make a great profit. But what did I do? I did the same thing I did in 2008. And I decided I'm going to, I'm going to puff my chest out and I'm going to get out of my lane and I'm going to, I'm going to roll, I'm going to roll the dice at being a multifamily investor again. And what happens? Half a million dollars lost in earnest money. And, and, and forgetting that if I put my destiny, if I put my financial future in the hands of a third party, I could absolutely get creamed. And so moving forward, my strategy will always be one that I can control. Stay in my lane with respect to what I know, right? Wholesaling is a safe way to real estate invest and also stay away from leverage. All right. Very good advice and uh, some pain, some painful lessons, I think, all around. Henry, I, were you investing in 2008? Yeah, I was not. I was not. I mm. was not. I mean, <laughs> I turned 21 in 2008, so I was just, <laughs> you can imagine. Uh, so I, I was not investing at the time. But I guess I will say that uh, I graduated college around then and learned uh, a similar lesson to Jamil, just trying to take control of your own life because it was very difficult to, to get a job in 2009 and sort of inspired me to get into real estate investing because I, uh, you know, wasn't able to find employment in the way that I wanted and just decided to take things into my own hand. So to answer your question, I was not in real estate as an investor in 2008, but I was in real estate as a home owner because I had just I had been working at my new job out of college uh, for a year or two, and I then decided I was going to be a homeowner, and I bought a condo in 2007, and uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Okay, how'd that do? So shortly after I bought it, and everything went crazy. This was a new condominium complex at that. So they were still building new buildings and selling new units. And so by 2008, they were selling brand new units for less than what I paid for mine. And then I was looking to move to where I am now in Arkansas and I couldn't sell it, obviously, because why would they buy mine when they can buy a brand new one for less? And so I actually got hit and had to short sale my property. So Oof. I was in real estate. I just wasn't in it as an investor. And I got, I got, I got burned, man. Well, good for all you, all four of you taking lumps and getting back on the horse. It's uh, it takes, it takes some guts for sure. <laughs> How long did it take you to buy another house after that? Henry, were you, were you scorned for a while? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was on my record for the, for the seven years. And so I didn't, I didn't buy anything again until gosh, 2015. And now look at you buying houses left and right. Absolutely, buddy. Raking them in. I do think we're going to see a rapid increase in short sales. I know I've already prepped for my business to start facilitating them. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if those come back. Like as an opportunity, you're preparing your business to, to buy them. Yeah, in 2008 to 10, we actually probably closed like 600 short sales Ooh. as a facilitation. It was just like, because we were a fee business, we were just trying to make money. So we would negotiate for brokers and investors and, and write offers ourselves. But, you know, it's just that with that, like the utility stat, with people can't keep up their bills, even though people have great interest rates, a lot of buyers stretch themselves when they bought. And so I do think there is going to be a gap of people where they, they paid a high price. It's an affordable payment, but they can't keep up with the inflation in the economy and, and they're just going to want to go. Also, a lot of people bought homes they didn't really want. 
and but their 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 balances might be too high and and those the i you know nowadays america likes to file bankruptcy so they just like hey move on to the next thing that's the scary part about america and what could happen with inventory wow all right so thank you all uh, this has been really insightful basically i guess if i can sum it up i think we're all sort of in agreement that we're we're heading towards some sort of correction, perhaps a standoff, um, but very different housing market from 2008. And this is just my opinion. I think all the stuff that we talked about sort of puts a, a backstop on on the declines that we're seeing that, you know, the housing market, mm-hmm. it's, it's starting to slide. It could go negative on a national level, um, but I think the odds, personally, I just think the odds of seeing housing prices decline anywhere near what they did in 2008 is a relatively low probability. Um, sounds like you guys all agree. I, I just want to say I'm, I'm stoked. Like I, I haven't been <laughs> this excited for a long time. I, I, we haven't been able to find inventory and th- right now there's this massive need for rental property, massive need. And all of a sudden we're getting discounts on houses. So I'm, I'm all in, I, we're going, <laughs> I'm starting a rental fund. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> I like it. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of On the Market. We would really appreciate it, all of you, if you like this episode or you just love On the Market or any of our esteemed panelists to please give us a review on either Spotify or Apple or give us a thumbs up on YouTube. It makes a huge difference for us. We want all five stars, as Henry is pointing out. So please do us a favor, throw us a review if you like this show, and we'll see you all next time. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies.